just whacking it normally. <laughs> Welcome to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and also by our listeners. Thank you so much to our newest Patreon members, Kristen, Dorothy, Munira, Mariam, and Owen. Find us at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. It's another Owen. This episode features Dr. William Moyes Weaver. He's an internationally known food historian and author of 22 books, including Heirloom Vegetable Gardening, 100 Vegetables and Where They Came From, and As American as Shoe Fly Pie, the Food Lore and Fake Lore of Pennsylvania Dutch Cuisine. Dr. Weaver lives in the 1805 Lamb Tavern in Devon, Pennsylvania, where he maintains a Jardin Potager in the style of the 1830s, featuring over 5,000 varieties of heirloom vegetables, flowers, and herbs. He is an organic gardener, a life member of Seed Savers Exchange, and for many years served as a contributing editor to Gourmet, Mother Earth News, and The Heirloom Gardener. From 2002 to 2010, Dr. Weaver lectured on food studies at Drexel University and is presently lecturing on regional American cuisine in connection with the nonprofit Academic Research Institute, organized under the name the Roughwood Center for Heritage Seedways. That's www.seedways.org. Dr. Weaver received his doctorate in food ethnography at the University College of Dublin in Ireland, the first doctorate awarded by the university in that field of study. In the winter of 2013, I had just moved to Philadelphia. I was looking for extra work, and Dr. Weaver hired me to care for his gardens and the Roughwood Seed Collection. During my four years working with him, I was fascinated by slow walks through the garden where he could reveal 10,000 years of human history in each plant story. It was here that I first learned how to carefully select and midwife the seeds of these countless storied species. And we started a seed catalog and grew for a couple other companies. One of my favorite parts, Dr. Weaver's work with seeds often connects and reconnects gardeners and farmers with seeds that help tell their own stories. One of the best examples is making the Horace Pippin peppers available to African-American growers in the Mid-Atlantic, as well as Pennsylvania Dutch and Lenny Lenape heirlooms from southeastern Pennsylvania. I really appreciate just the vast knowledge that Dr. Weaver has uh, about seeds and in particular his interest in his own culture. Um, it's it's um, surprisingly not very common that men working in this field collecting 
uh, seed knowledge and historical narratives um, around food and, 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 and food ways. It's rare that they're studying their own culture. And um, it's uh, actually, for me, a bit refreshing, honestly, that it's not it's just a museum uh, of, of, of other people's stories and seeds and, and that sort of thing, but that he is very interested uh, also, you know, and particularly in the Pennsylvania Dutch heritage uh, and that he speaks the language. So for me, that's really, really powerful, you know, not to mention, of course, the seeds that he has been able to keep and popularize and bring back into regular consciousness. It's really been very powerful uh, experience to watch over the years uh, as Dr. Weaver mentored you on in this work and really helped to grow you uh, in a real way into uh, the seed keeper uh, and the force that you are in this work. So that for me has always been, uh, you know, something that I think a lot about when I think about Dr. Weaver is, uh, you know, his, his commitment to his culture, but also to to gathering up uh, stories uh, and, and keeping seeds um, that would otherwise be lost. Well, let's get into those stories. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. And we're going to start in Dr. Weaver's living room, where he describes his early life with his grandparents, their garden, and their kitchen. Well, my grandfather had a, a huge kitchen garden, two acres. And um, I grew up with my grandparents because my parents were working. They were saving money to build a house. So I was raised by my grandparents, which meant that I had a seed saver for a grandfather and also, a, I would say, a pretty good botanist because he understood how to breed plants. Um, he understood the whole thing about freezing plants, seeds, to keep them viable for a long time. My grandfather started the collection not because he had any kind of romantic ideas about it, what we now call heirloom seeds. He was simply, it was 1932 and we had a lot of members of the family who were out of work. It was the Great Depression. My grandparents built a new house. They paid cash during the Depression because my grandfather had, a, he was a, an accountant business. and It's like, it doesn't matter whether there's a depression, there's always a need for accountants, whether they're going bankrupt or making money. It's like the funeral business, you know, there's always a supply of dead bodies. So they made it very easily through the, um, uh, the, personally, they made it through the depression pretty easily, but a lot of relatives were not. And so he decided he was going to grow food for them. And that's where, that was sort of the inspiration for him starting the seed collection. But, you know, he, my grandfather was one of those people, well, I, I need bees, of course, because we want to pollinate the plants. Well, he gets 10 or 20 beehives. I mean, then he gets apple trees, and everything that he touched turned into these big projects. And uh, I, I grew up with that, thinking it was normal, but he was just a very energetic person. Of course, my grandmother processed all that food, uh, so that, you know, 40, 40 quart jars of tomato sauce, all that. So, so I, I grew up with a, a cook, a very good one. Actually, she was very good at pickling, and that's why I think I'm, I picked up that pickling touch. But I can remember my grandfather, I was out beside the beehives once, and he, all of his queens had names. And, um, and then he told me, 
and each one of his bees had a name. And I, I just thought, how can you tell one from the other? <laughs> this little boy. But he was teaching me to respect life and that these bees were the reason why we have apples and on and on and on. And, oh, I get the connection. So um, he was very, he was, he was a very good teacher in that respect. And he got, he, he just got right down to the earth with you. There was none of this highfalutin talk. Can you, can you say their names and tell us a little bit? I know that your grandfather was also doing genealogical and cultural research into your own family. And I want to hear how he started shaping his collection. What were his, his goals in terms of which seeds he collected and why? Uh, my grandfather was H. Ralph Weaver, and my grandmother was Grace Eugenia Hickman Weaver. He was working on the, um, the Weaver family. Uh, you see, his, his grandfather, Abraham Weaver, and, his, and Abraham Weaver's wife went to Europe in 1878 to the Paris Expo, and they went to Switzerland because that's where we came from. And so... My grandfather, I guess he was bitten by the, by the Swiss bug or whatever, but he got interested in the family history. And um, yeah, I know we come from Mettmannstetten in Zuri, Zuri lead. <laughs> um, so when I go back to Switzerland, uh, if I go to this, these places that, that they sort of remember who I am, I'm like this distant cousin that they've lost, and now they're having me back. Switzerland's like a country club in a way. You're either in or you're not. It's a very, this is the way they are, very clannish. But uh, my grandfather was very much uh, interested in the genealogy, and that's how he got a lot of seeds, because he was working on the family history, so he'd go and talk to his aunt or a great uncle or somebody, and they, of course they were all Mennonites. They had gardens, and so they t talked and traded seeds. My grandfather left the Mennonite church and he married, when he married my grandmother, he became a Quaker. He, didn't, he wasn't really interested in the, the Mennonite view of the Bible. So um, that, that worked in, in the favor of the seeds because my grandmother came from a farming family and she knew we had, had all these old cousins. Uh, and um, so we had Quakers seeds coming in and we have Quakers stuff in the garden right now. Quaker pie pumpkin, for example. Um, so it was a mix, but it was, I would say, his seed interest was like anybody from southeastern Pennsylvania with all these overlapping family histories, Pennsylvania Dutch, Welsh, Irish, you name it, and Quaker, and just all mixed together. Before we move on, here's a quick note on Pennsylvania Dutch, which includes Mennonites, Amish, and many others. Could you do the nutshell version for people who aren't familiar with who are the Pennsylvania Dutch? I did a book, wrote a book based on my doctorate called As American as Shoefly Pie. And in that book, I explain that the Pennsylvania Dutch are not from Holland, but they are a, a group of people who came here in the 18th and 19th century from Switzerland, from southwest Germany, from southeast Germany, and from northwest Germany. So there are all these regional cultures, old world cultures that came together in Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania Dutch language um, is a new world language. It's its 
it stands on its own two feet now. It's it's considered a, a not a dialect. It's it's considered a language, and the Pennsylvania Dutch call it Deutsch. Meerschwitz Deutsch. It's it's not really intelligible to modern German speakers. Is that correct? It's not intelligible to modern German speakers. If you're from the Palatinate or from Swabia, you sort of catch things, but it has developed um, uh, its own words, its own languages, for uh, own terms for things, because it's um, anglicized in some ways. You know, in German, the rail, railway is the Eisenbahn, but in Pennsylvania Dutch is Regelweg. In Germany, you might say Dankeser or something like that. But in Pennsylvania Dutch, you say Ich bedanke mich. It's old-fashioned German. Now back to H. Ralph Weaver and his seed collection. Dr. Weaver mentions Hannah Freeman, a Lenny Lenape healer, basket maker, and farmer, who lived from 1731 to 1802 and was thought historically to be the last surviving member of the Lenape in Chester County, Pennsylvania. I think I think he collected things that uh, that attracted his attention. For example, there's this uh, Hannah Freeman pole bean, like used to call her Indian Hannah. But now it's more correct to call her just Hannah Freeman. I think my grandfather. Uh, well, he, he was related to the Webbs, and Hannah Freeman lived on the Webb farm. There were Quakers out in, near Unionville in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And um, so, but he was also interested from a gen- genealogical standpoint because uh, Hannah Freeman worked as a housekeeper for William Brinton. Uh, of the, there is an historic house, a 1704 house, south of Westchester is the old Brinton house, one of the early Pennsylvania houses. Well, my grandmother was a direct descendant of William Brinton, and I have a spoon with his initials on it. So, you know, I can see that my grandmother must have inspired my grandfather to get interested in Indian Hannah because it was a genealogical connection there. Um, How she got her being, I don't know, but I suspect she picked it up while she was over in New Jersey. The Quakers heard it during the French and Indian War. The Quakers heard it all, the, the local Indians who were attending Quaker meetings and whatever, over to the Brotherton Plantation in um, New Jersey so they would be safe because there were people killing the Indians simply because of their ethnicity. Um, they, it, was, it was a nightmare. So Indian Hannah or Hannah Freeman was over New Jersey for a few years until it was safe to come back to Pennsylvania. And um, so her, I mean, that one being has got this book practically about this woman who also made baskets. And her baskets, a couple of them are in the Historical Society in Westchester, Chester County Historical Society. So on and on it goes, you know, it just keeps branching out. I would love to have interviewed her, but um, she's just one tip of the iceberg. There's so many other stories connected with seeds in this collection. This brought us to discussing H.R. Weaver's friendship with Horace Pippin, a self-taught African-American artist from Westchester, Pennsylvania, who became famous around the time of his death in the 1940s. 
there is a, a playwright who's, going, is writing a, who's creating a play about my grandfather. I think there's even music in it. Uh, my grandfather and his friendship with Horace Pippin. I think my grandfather met Horace Pippin at a tap room, as they used to call it, which, which was down the alley from where Pippin lived. But that also happened to be uh, where my grandfather's pigeon raised. He had, a, he had racing pigeons, by the way. You know, the pigeons make the poop to fertilize the garden. It all worked. He had it all, all, all arranged in his mind. But anyhow, I'm not quite sure, but my grandmother was pretty sure that they met there, and then Pippa would come over to the house, and my grandmother would give him dinner, that kind of thing, or lunch. Uh, Horace Pippin was married. He had a wife, but she took in, and she took in laundry, uh, and he had a garden. So he was growing peppers as well in his backyard. He came to my grandfather to get stung. Um, my grandfather didn't like stinging Mr. Pippin. Horace Pippin was injured in World War I, so he had a, a bad arm. And he could, I don't think he could even drive a car. Um, because I know as a fact that my grandparents would drive him and his wife to church suppers, and they would go to these black churches that have fried chicken dinners, that kind of thing. My grandmother and grandfather loved these $5 dinners. But Pippin would go uh, to the house and get stung, and um, he would give my grandfather seeds to sort of bribe him. You know, one dead bee, here's a, here's, here's a rare pepper. Pippin did a painting of Birmingham Friends Meeting, and it's, it's in all, all, all of the websites that have anything to do with Pippin. And I'm sure my grandfather took him down there because it had been a hospital during the Revolution. Was that his meeting, uh, your grandfather's? My grandfather is buried there, and so is my grandmother, and all of my grandmother's family. So they had reason to go there a lot, because I can remember as a child, my grandmother would pick flowers. After my grandfather died, even, she would pick his favorite iris and peonies and put that on his grave on Memorial Day. So I'm pretty sure that Pippin was taken down there by my grandparents, either my grandfather or grandmother. Obviously, the best-known pepper connected to that story is the fish pepper, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, yeah, that's only one out of maybe 20 peppers that my grandfather got. He also got other things from Pippin, but um, a lot of that didn't survive. What I noticed about all the peppers that came from Pippin is there's something, there's something splashy and colorful about them. And I think whether it was intentional or was just because he had an artist's eye, but he picked out things that, that, that would stand out well, and they really were unusual. Where do you think he found them? Well, he had, he had a huge network of people. You see, his wife took in laundry, but she also moonlighted uh, with the um, de Baptistes. There were these black caterers in Westchester who did funerals. And of course, funeral dinner is a big thing in the black community. So Horace's wife had ample opportunity to interact with, with people uh, who were growing things because the chefs had their own little sources. And I stumbled on one of them. Um, the Supiots who lived over here on Valley Forge Mountain were French. They had a farm in France and they had a farm here in Chester County. And they advertised their French vegetables uh, and I found there was a, a black chef in Philadelphia who wrote a cookbook in 1901 
the Supiots had an ad in that. And those ads helped pay for the book, to help raise money for this, this chef who was retiring. So there's all these overlapping stories that we've lost, but I've, I've stumbled on some fragments, let's put it that way. The fish pepper, what can I say? They, they use the dried white, it goes from white to striped to red, and um, the, the powdered white hot pepper was used in sauces, in white sauces, because if you put, if you put um, paprika or some red pepper in a bechamel sauce, it's going to turn it pink or it's going to discolor it. The old chefs had this sense of visu visual appearance. And we, if you're bringing this stuff out on, in silver the way they used to, um, you want it to look its best. So I can understand the, the value judgments that went into making some of these things popular. I was asked, what was the, what was the heyday for the fish pepper? Well, I don't know how old it is. It may go back to a Serrano that somebody selected. Um, but I'm sure it was something like it was around in the 1820s, definitely to about the First World War. And then, you know, our food, our style of food changes in this country. And that's when all that old style catering type food sort of went out of fashion. There was a very distinct understanding that the black chefs were using peppers that other people weren't. Look, nobody called it fish pepper back in the 1820s. There were probably other names for the very same pepper. Um, it's going to be a bit of a puzzle to, to get all that put back together. If we can only find a diary, that would be great. Um, and some of the best chefs in the, uh, in the 19th century didn't write down anything, not even their recipes, because it was all up in their heads. So I don't know how far back we're going to go with that, but I mean, it takes a while, at least 20 years, to get a pepper to become the fish pepper, all right? Because it's a selection. And on top of it, what makes the fish pepper special is that it has a, a trace of albinoism, which is a recessive gene, which means it's, it's going to be weak, weaker than other peppers because of this albinoism. Somebody figured that out and also figured out that you don't save the white seedlings because they're not going to live. You have to let them grow a bit and then pick out the ones with the best patchy leaves on and on. There's a whole trick to, to growing that thing, which means that somebody, somebody knew what they were doing and that this just didn't happen, didn't fall out of the clouds. I'd really like to know more about the person who originated that. The care that you're describing in, in maintaining such a pepper with this albinoism, this variegation that can phase itself out if you're not careful, it reminds me just of the art of seed saving that you were kind of my first teacher in, but also reminds me of what you said about your grandfather and how anything, he could make anything live, he could breed anything. And it reminds me of the Franklinia tree outside. And I'm wondering if we could just take a slight detour into some of the ways your grandfather, some of the remarkable plants your grandfather was able to work with. Well, I think you even said at one point he could graft a tree to the side of his house and it would grow. Yes, I was just going to say that. <laughs> I could just stick it into the board. Um, I've never been able to figure out how to graft, so this was always a mystery to me. But 
I have his Franklinia tree that I brought over from Westchester, and he grafted it to, on something. It's on, a, it's on a different route. And if you look up the Franklinia, that's one of the first things the botanists tell you. It doesn't graft well, and they only live to be like 30 or 40 years old. Well, hello, this Franklinia that's out here dates back to the 1930s at least, so it's, it's, it's very old by Franklinia measure. I don't know what it was, but I think it's some kind of a crab apple that he grafted it to because there's something trying to grow out from the root, and it looks to me like it's some type of a crab apple. He had an apple tree that had eight or nine different varieties because he could just doop, 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 graft all these different branches to one tree and then he could have all, all the apples he wanted. Um, but the Franklinia is still going strong. Unfortunately, an ash tree fell on it and so it's only half there, but I'm, I want to prune it and get it back in shape because it's still going strong. I don't know why, but it's, it's still going strong. In our departure from speaking about your, your grandparents, um, these Pippin peppers, you know, we're talking about their deeper histories, but there was a very important historical moment in your lifetime in the 60s in your grandfather's basement. And I'm wondering if you could paint that picture for us, as this is why we, we probably have most of them today. Oh, I th- you're referring to the fact that I was helping my grandmother clean out her freezer. And there in the bottom, this was a big deep freeze chest about the size of the couch you're sitting on and the whole bottom was filled up all the way across the bottom were these little baby food jars full of seeds and my grandmother totally forgot they were there and I said what's this what what does Pippin mean because to me I didn't I hadn't connected Pippin the painter with you know with with um, my grandfather's collection or anything I had come back from the University of Virginia and there was an apple called an Albemarle Pippin. It was a cooking apple. Pippin meant a cooking apple. What's this all about? And so then she would say, oh, well, that was Mr. Pippin. He was such a gentleman, you know, on and on and on. It was like pulling teeth to get this stuff out of my grandmother. But I would, when she was in a good mood and getting chatty, we would just start to talk and, and, and then gradually, I put two and two together, and that's how it happened. Uh, a little technical side note about seeds and freezers. I feel like this is my reference point for when uh, I take seeds out of freezers, and maybe I'm crossing stories here, but did you learn in that process that it, you have to wait a little while before opening a seed jar from the freezer, or was it later? I had no idea what I was doing. I killed a lot of seeds, let's be honest. Then I, then I started to read, and, well, common sense just says you've got to let them sit a day or two before you start to grow them. And now I thaw them out, and I, I give them a, a debrulic acid treatment as well, so they get a real kickstart once they're in the, in this, in the potting soil. Yeah, that was, that was trial and error, totally trial and error. Around the time he found his grandfather's seeds, in the 60s and into the early 70s, a young Will Weaver took an undergraduate degree in international law at the University of Virginia, was encouraged to go to take a master's in architecture, and was sent to Italy. I'm staying in a Palladian villa. I'm going to the markets. I'm looking at seeds. I'm picking up radicchios. I, I have the Venetian rocket, 
um, that I, I got that seed in the 70s. I still have it in the seed collection. So suddenly, I sort of blossomed into this, this seed person, uh, but it was really about food. Parallel to that, while I was working on my master's, I was also doing um, side work uh, for Ralph Lauren because I, I had a mustache. I was sort of the midnight cowboy. <laughs> I didn't do magazine work. I just did this walkway stuff. But anyhow, I got to know Julie Dannenbaum, and she had the Philadelphia Cooking School. She would cater these parties where all these uh, guys were. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Venice, jump forward, thinking about what I want to do with my life. I'm in Venice again, and uh, I hear this voice, and I look up. It's behind the Greedy Palace Hotel, and there was a balcony, and there's Julie Dannenbaum up there having her spider. Oh, that's creme de menthe and vodka. <laughs> One of those is enough to kill you, but anyhow, she, she was, I think, well into her third. Well, Weaver, what the hell are you doing in Venice? And I said, well, I could ask the same question about you. She had just finished her first summer cooking school in the Greedy Palace. Well, sitting beside her, I went upstairs, she invited me up, were the Circus, and they owned Dover Publications in New York. Long story short, they invited Will to edit a series of architecture books, which he did at first. But nobody in, their, in, the, in the whole publishing house knew anything about gardens, and they had garden books and herbals. And so I ended up editing all that. And, and then I said to my grandmother, well, I'm coming back on weekends, and I'm going to get this garden going here in Philadelphia, in Westchester, and I'm going to get the seed collection back up because I suddenly realized, after having read all of these herbals and what have you from the 30s and 40s, we're sitting on something really useful. And uh, so I started growing my grandfather's veggies. I would schlep all that stuff on the train back to New York on Sundays. And on Monday was the famous green market, Weaver's Green Market on Varick Street. It was a 12-story building, and during lunch hour, I set up shop in the hall, and all these people from upstairs and down came up to buy veggies. I paid my New York rent with vegetables. How do you like that? <laughs> and then I got very smart because, oh, there's an onion shortage in New York. People are paying a dollar an onion. I'm thinking, oh, well, what if I get two big 50-pound bags and haul them to New York? I call my Amish friends in Lancaster and... Um, the beachy Amish, they have phones and cars. And I said, what can we do about the onion situation? So, I mean, it, it just, it snowballed. And then it got to the point where I realized I could do much better not working in New York, but coming home. And by then, and, and growing the seed collection, and by then several historic sites contacted me about, we don't think our kitchen gardens are up to par, or we want to build a uh, bread oven and we don't know how to do it. Can you help us? And so I just sort of built up a reputation and um, I invented and reinvented myself as I went. But the seeds were always very important because I helped Old Salem in North Carolina get their kitchen gardens 
together and more accurate than they were. Uh, and it just, it just built from that. And then I realized I could write books and get things published and make a living off of this. Uh, I had a sense that you've spent so much time in the field gathering stories, and that's, you know, obviously something we're doing right now. And um, as seed savers, it's just often part of the work. And I'm curious if you could speak to to that experience and even paint the picture of some of these kitchens and seeds you received with stories. Well, uh, I know that that I had a distant cousin, Mary Larkin Thomas, who was um, an old-fashioned Quaker, and uh, she was born in 1886, and her mom was married in 1864. She was one of these late babies, you know? And um, she had all kinds of stories, and she lived in this old house in Westchester, chock-a-block full of old Chester County antiques, and she saved seeds. And she was, aside from my grandfather, she was the first person, I think, outside of the family who I, I visited her regularly and I, I have a couple of things from Mary Larkin Thomas. But then I spent time in Lancaster with, with Weaver relatives and I picked up things like that. Um, There was a, a distant cousin Weaver who had greenhouses and he raised rare flowers and he was a source of seed for my grandfather. And I, I found the daughter in her 80s, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I got to know her, Frances Weaver Ament, hasn't long passed away, but I I got seeds from her. And just, it would be like one one person would just lead me to another. Uh, A real breakthrough, however, when I got my doctorate, I had to interview people. I wanted to do my PhD on, I don't know, pork butchering in Cyprus or something like that. And the, the people at University College in, in Dublin said, but you live in Pennsylvania. That's a very interesting state. What do you have in your own backyard so you don't have to travel to Cyprus? I said, well, you mean the Pennsylvania Dutch? Do it. <laughs> so um, they said, we'll give you a PhD, but we want you to publish three books. Uh, so I did. I've done that. But interviewing people on food took me into their kitchens. And of course, they're sorting seeds as well. So I picked up all kinds of seed stories out of that and uh, lots of interviews. And I have, I recorded all those and they're on CD, which is now <laughs> old technology, but we'll, we'll, we'll get all that information uh, preserved electronically in some manner. You know, when I was interviewing one lady, for example, um, she still had her own garden, but then she would tell me how uh, her mother would catch snakes and cook them and get the fat from the snakes and use that fat on her skin around the eyes to get rid of wrinkles. And her mother was was an herb granny. And I'm thinking, I want to hear more about this, you know. you just never know what you're going to find. What What's one of the, one or two of the most memorable moments gathering these stories? I mean, that one sounds incredible. But other times in these kitchens, learning about herb grannies that really may stay with you. Well, one of them uh, 
was um, an old lady who lived. I don't what I don't remember the name. It's Green something. It's out in Lancaster County. I was taken there because uh, a friend of mine, Ivan Glick, wanted me to see her house. Magdalena. She was Magdalena Hildebrandt. Because she lived in this old stone house that was built in the early 1700s. All by, she lived by herself. And Ivan wanted me to see the house. Well, we get there, and she has goats. She's making cheese. She's cooking on a, on a hearth. She's a plain person, you know. She, doesn't, um, she didn't have electricity. I mean, it was like a time machine. And she was an herb granny, too. And she, she knew all about the herbal med remedies. She had a cellar. You go down in, there was a spring in there. And she had her milk was down in old earthen jars down in the water. And I'm looking at this and thinking, I mean, museums would pay a fortune to have all of this stuff that they could demonstrate with. And here it is. This woman's using it. And that, to me, was just, it was incredible. What, what seeds are feel like core to your collection now that were gathered during that time? And when is this time you're talking about? When I came back to Pennsylvania, 70s and 80s, yeah. But we keep, I keep adding things to the collection, or we do, because I think we need to be, if we're going to use it as an instruction, a tool for instructing people about food, then we've got to have samples of things. I've been adding a lot of African things because I want to try them. And I'm interested in this idea that, well, you know, if this bean comes from Kenya, then it's, it's not going to suffer from global warming. And maybe we can try it here in Pennsylvania and see if it does well. So I'm, I'm looking at this global warming issue and looking at things from other parts of the world. Uh, but also, I think we have to understand that um, South America is... A, an incredibly rich continent for, for foods. And the, a lot of those Peruvian peppers and potatoes and what have you are worth growing here. And then if we can adapt them, because sometimes they're, they're day length sensitive. In other words, our days are not long enough because um, they're on the equator, you know, even though they're high altitude, that kind of thing. But I think we'll always be adding things because I think it should be part of what we're what we're doing. I mean, I like I like hot food, so the peppers speak to my condition. Uh, the hotter, the better. <laughs> I'm curious about your story and, and and what seed in your collection feels or felt like most profoundly of your family story. I don't know. I haven't really, I haven't developed that kind of an attachment. I try, I try to love all my seeds equally. You know, you don't want to hurt their feelings. <laughs> um, and they are living things after all. And plants respond, you know, they can figure out what you're doing. They, 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 they sense your vibes. I, I haven't really found something that tells the story of the weavers. Uh, if that's what you're asking me. I mean, I went to the Heine Weber house in Weaverland, um, and this is a Pennsylvania Dutch that was built in the 1770s, I believe, and it had a tile roof. I mean, it was an architectural gem. It was demolished, unfortunately, after a big fight. 
the Mennonite Historical Society asked me to go through the house and help them pick out things they could salvage. And I'm in the attic, and under the floorboards in the attic, I found beans. And I thought, these, these must be very old. Well, they weren't that old. Somebody was, maybe the squirrels took them up there, who knows. Uh, but they grew. And so I've got some beans that came out of that house, which is now long gone. Um, and one of them is that Shawnee calico pole bean. And the other one is the Weber's uh, Dinkelboom, the, the Weaver's spelt bean. So the spirit of that house continues through those beans. I suppose you'd have to put it that way. Dr. Don Yoder was an American folklorist specializing in the study of Pennsylvania Dutch, Quaker, Amish, and other Anabaptist folk life in Pennsylvania. He was one of the founders of the Kutztown Folk Festival, and in 1970 helped to introduce the concept of an American Folk Life Foundation. And several years later, he was one of its first trustees. He was a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, where he specialized in religious folk life and the study of belief. I know that your work and your life was very influenced by Dr. Don Yoder, uh, who lived in this home when I was working with you. And he was the kindest, gentlest <laughs> man, and he would sleep on this couch I'm, I'm sitting on. This is, when I'm in this room, I think of him taking his naps every day, and he would pick the blueberries out front ahead of the catbirds, and um, he would sit in the kitchen where, I, where we met you today, shelling all the beans slowly from his high chair. Yeah. And um, I just have such fond memories of him and, and, and was so sad when he passed, and it, but he was into his 90s at that point. Um, but I, I know that um, you both did such comparable work, and I'm, I'm curious how you would kind of describe the ways you influenced each other in your work with food ways or, or, or folk ways. Well, um, we were cousins anyway, so we could talk family. And he, he and my grandmother were very close. They talked on the phone every single day. <laughs> and they could, they could talk about cousins I never knew because the, these are people who are long since gone. So there was that genealogical side of things. But um, I was, you know, I'm the creative type, and he was the, the, the scholarly, didactic, professorial dot the I cross the T's type and so it was it was it was really very good in a sense because we could edit each other's work and be very critical and and in a helpful way so we were a good team in that respect yes that, that's true and he's the one that got me interested in the food ethnography to begin with because he was going to the this ethnographic food conference he helped found it I think in Europe and um, uh, he, he encouraged me to get involved with that, and I did. And that's how I ended up with getting my doctorate eventually. So we were, we were good for each other. But, you know, we were two, two planets under one roof, in, in a sense, because we, we, we had our own space, and we did our own thing. And um, 
And in a in a house like this, you can do that because it's big enough. How many rooms are in this house? I, I believe they're twenty eight. Believe, and you've been here how many years? Forty something. We even have a ghost. Uh, we have a resident ghost. What's the ghost all about? The ghost story. The ghost story is rich, and it goes back to how this place got its name, Roughwood, Roughwood, or whatever in Scotland was the name of an ancestral estate for Thomas Alexander Biddle, the banker. And I was trying to, and he's the one who gave the, the property its name. And I was trying to figure out why he bought this, because it was a farm in 1883. Well, it turns out at the University of Pennsylvania, um, some diaries were donated. And in one of the diaries, it gives the whole details because Thomas Alexander Biddle bragged too much about his mistress. He bought this property for his mistress, who was uh, um, Madame Pooter. She was a, a notorious Philadelphia madam, you know, the kind with the leather and the whips and all that stuff. Yes, so we have Mrs. Pooter's ghost. I think she's looking for... Tommy. <laughs> you have to remind her that it's, it's, you're not Tommy. No, no, she doesn't bother me. Yeah, you're two universes in a big house. Uh, you know what? The ghosts would have nowhere to live if it hadn't been for me. So th they have to be grateful. <laughs> we cut in here back to briefly talking about Dr. Weaver's grandmother. Well, she had a code word for gay people. It, if she said somebody was musical, that meant he was gay. <laughs> well, aren't we musical? Yes. But it was, it was not pejorative. It was just, oh, you know, that's how things are. <laughs> I want to ask you a funny question. Someone kind of was noticing how many musical people are involved with kind of cultural reproduction, cultural preservation and reproduction. Uh, and I'm wondering if you see any patterns there. I wonder if it's something, you know, that we aren't necessarily, you know, carrying our family lines ourselves all the time. And we want to do, we're just drawn to, to documenting and, and sharing. I, I've thought about that. And actually Don Yoder and I talked about that a lot. It was his idea that, um, the gay community we're outsiders, and so we have a different worldview, and we see things in a, from a different angle. And we often see it through the angle of culture and art, so maybe that's part of it. And, and we have a way of creating, making things special that most people would probably just walk past and not think about it. Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that We've been, we've been given the gift of another viewpoint. Well, I have to... Complicated because not every gay person is good with seeds or a good painter or a good singer, but, you know, it's... Yeah, not everyone who's musical is musical. Right. But I, um, I want to say that I just really appreciate it. Like, I, I loved being... When I worked here, you know, I was here for four growing seasons and got to spend time with you and Dr. Dr. Yoder, and it's not often that a, a younger gay person gets to be with people who've experienced different, a different gay timeline. And to hear the stories that Dr. Yoder would share with me of the times before air travel, 
when he would take tours to Europe and the people he would meet, I'll put it that way. Just like how different his experience was from mine growing up and just having people who've kind of come before me to, 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 to see, you know, a, diff- a different story, but that's connected to mine. So I just wanted to say I, I really appreciate that. Well, um, yes, he traveled on ships, and um, I don't know whether I should say this or not, but it's true, so why not? I salvaged all of his old love letters. I have his complete private love life in boxes here at the house. And I refuse to destroy that stuff because it would make a Broadway play. <laughs> you may, will you write it? No, I'm not the person to write it. I'm too close to it. I just know that it's amazing. I mean, I had no idea he could speak Spanish fluently or Italian fluently, but he's, he's writing love letters to five different guys from the same hotel. I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what year was this, do you think? It was the 50s and 60s. Yeah. yeah, really incredible, beautiful stories to be able to hear while shelling peas at the kitchen table. Well, and you had the unfortunate experience of being here with the day he died, so... Um, yeah. Not a happy day. It was very unexpected and difficult that day. Yeah. Well, he wanted his ashes scattered on an ancestral property in Schuylkill County, and I made sure that happened. Let's leave it at that. Now, moving forward a little from the 70s and 80s, I think, if my timeline is right, I think you were maybe the person with the most seeds in the Seed Savers Exchange catalog at points in the 90s. Yes, I had close four to 600 things that I was listing. I had to give that up when I went to Ireland to get my doctorate because I couldn't do that. Um, It was actually rather good money, to be honest with you, but you had to work like crazy in February to meet all these uh, orders. The members of Seed Savers Exchange would get the listing. It was the big book um, that listed everything that everyone offered, and everybody was coded. I was PAW, what, PAW3, maybe that, something like that. Anyway, but it was all done by mail, and and slow mail at that, and uh, and a lot of people just sent cash. It 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 was quite old fashioned and primitive the way we were, we were running things, and um, but also personal notes written on on the order because there were order forms at the back of this yearbook which you could tear out or mimeograph or whatever you mimeograph. Good grief, photocopy. <laughs> um, and uh, so you would get hundreds. At, they would all come at once because there were a lot of people who would procrastinate. They didn't want to spend money at Christmas. And they figured out they had enough money to spend by the end of January, so they would put in for seed. I'm a life member of Seed Savers Exchange. And um, the good thing is that we had some upheavals here over the last two or three years, and we lost some seed. But people in Seed Savers Exchange who've got the seed from here are sending it back. So uh, we have to get a seed archivist who can just sit down every day and keep that database uh, up to date. I'm, I'm curious how you look towards the future, what you kind of hope for of how this work continues. 
Well, the Roughwood Center is now a 501c3 nonprofit, and they're working on grant proposals right now. The idea is I'll be emeritus, I will have a salary, and I will advise these people how to run the collection, but I'll be free to finish my books because I have some books I want to finish. You know, when Don Yoder died, he had finished a book the day before. So he closed his eyes knowing he had finished his book, which is probably the best kind of gift you can get. If, uh, but um, So I, I have quite a few books in me, ready. Or some of them are ready to go, and I'm going to be launching a book soon on the Grace Parr cookbook from Philadelphia, and I did all of the photography. By the way, I love food photography, and I, I got very good at that when I was working as a... Uh, contributing editor of Gourmet Magazine. So, I asked Dr. Weaver to talk about his pretzel room on the third floor. Well, I'm doing a book on the social history of the pretzel. And um, you might say, the big twist. <laughs> um, and I realized that I needed props, so I started collecting pretzel tins. There must be 80 up there. Some of them are quite old. And I think the the stacks of pretzel tins are going to make a nice end paper for this book. It's it's quite quite a sight to be seen. Is it not also the cast iron room? Or something else in there? No, no. Oh, the, the pretzel tins are in with the baskets and the, and the pottery. The iron room is a different room. <laughs> <laughs> what are your, your hopes or what can you tell a new generation of seed savers and potential seed savers about kind of the importance of this work right now? Well, I think the big, the big clarion call today is food security. And if you want to care about your family and your, and your, your neighbors and take care of one another, you're going to have to start to go back to the whole, to the village idea of growing your own food and taking care of one another. This is very important. And there is absolute solid scientific evidence to prove that the heirloom vegetables grown organically are their nutritional value is over the top compared to the commercial stuff that people can buy it in the supermarkets. The tomatoes that taste like cardboard. We all know that old story. But I have a young guy working here part time, Josh, and he's, he's an angel. He couldn't believe the difference between lettuce grown here and the lettuce he was eating from the Acme, or sorry, Acme, but, you know, from food chains. But um, it's totally different. I grew up, my mother was not much of a cook. Tuna fish, casserole, you know, Western omelet, her Swedish meatballs that were like firebombs that burned. (laughs) On and on we go. And so I think the food revolution or revival that took place in the 70s, 80s was my generation rebelling against that Eisenhower era cooking. And I think the young people now are rebelling against the parents whose meals came out of cans and frozen dinners, that kind of thing. And they're beginning to realize that uh, they even feel better because they're eating healthy food. Let's not forget the health aspect here. It's also very good 
um, therapy to go out and work in the garden for a while and get some of that steam out of your body and calm down. We won't be so angry with one another. <laughs> Reduce road, road rage. Get out there and weed. <laughs> What's the biggest mistake a new seed saver makes? Taking on too much at once, I would say start small. And start with things that are easy, like lettuce or radishes. Or, I mean, they're, they're easy. And, and you'll, see, you'll see the fruits of your labors very quickly. And then, who knows, you might discover that you really like carrots, and they're biennial, so you've got to be patient because you're not going to get seeds until the next year, and then you've got to store them over the winter, blah, blah. It gets complicated, but you might have a talent for that, and you don't even know it. But start small, because otherwise you can overwhelm yourself and think, oh, I can't do this. Okay, great. Well, speaking of overwhelming oneself, do you think we could look at your room of seeds? It's chaos right now. Great. That's, that's the life of a seed saver. We made a stop in the kitchen on the way to the seed room. We're in the old lamb tavern, an important tavern on the way from Lancaster to Philly, correct? That's correct. It was a working farm and tavern up until 1866. And then it, was, then it became a summer home for a series of Philadelphia owners from the city as they're sort of uh, come out here to cool off from the heat. Um, it still has an old um, hearth? Yeah, that's absolutely. And we just got our bronze plaque for the Underground Railroad because this was a way station on the Underground Railroad. And we even know the names of the people involved. So. Right, and you're working with the local black church on right. that. Right. Um, it's um, Mount Zion AME Church here in Devon. And the the cook here at the, at the tavern was um, Mary Mullen, and she, she married um, Benton... Uh, who was, I think he was the tavern keeper or one, anyway, they were employees here at the, at, the, at the tavern and her parents founded the church. So, I mean, we have this gen genealogical connection and they're buried up there, so uh, in the graveyard. So it's, uh, it's really nice because now we can embrace that whole community because we've given some, some more sense to their own history. So we're standing in the kitchen, and on the table, as usual, is a lot of vegetables um, harvested from the garden uh, for seed saving. You were squeezing tomato seeds when I walked in. And can you tell us a little bit about this very unusual-looking tomato, and, and maybe also about the ground cherries? Well, the, um, the tomato uh, emerged, let's use that term, it's a natural hybrid that it, uh, occurred in a field of James Weaver, an old order Mennonite in Bowers, Pennsylvania, up near Kutztown. And I got um, some plants from him, and I've been maintaining this because it's a real Pennsylvania Dutch, how, how Dutch can it be? It's, it's a real local variety, and it, 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 it's a paste tomato, and it's long and skinny, and he calls it bowling pin because that's about the shape of it. And he, he's the one that puts on the pepper festival? Yes, he has a pepper festival. And also, I think this time of year, it's you can pick your own tomatoes and peppers and squash and watermelons. And a lot of, a lot of small businesses do that, and they buy, they buy you know, a truckload of stuff, and then they spend the winter pickling and, and selling prod, products made from things he grew in his field. The ground cherries are easy to grow and they'll reseed themselves and you'll find them 
are along the periphery of every kitchen garden in the Dutch country because they're sort of um, big producers, not a lot of labor involved, and the Pennsylvania Dutch love to make pies with them. In my book called Dutch Treats, I have a recipe and a photo. Well, let's mosey over here. You can see this is the seed archive. I mean, this, these are the seeds we sell. Uh -huh. So, and, and Marianne has it all in order. I see. I'm, look, I'm just looking at some of the names here. Uh, so you've got the Lenape finger squash. Yeah. It's like a patty pan with like uh, exaggerated yeah, fingers. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a Lenape squash that's ripening on the, uh, it's a green striped maycock on the table. Oh, okay. And it's it turned yellow now. When it turns yellow and the green stripes turn orange, then it's ripe to take the seed out. And there's weaver pole bean. Yeah, but that's not my weaver. There seems to be a lot of weavers. Yeah. Just a note that you can buy some of these seeds and many more at the Roughwood Center for Heritage Seedways at www.seedways.org. S-E-E-D-W-A-Y-S dot org. Well, you, this is the seed room, and it's a mess. I'm sorry. Okay. Things to file, things that need to be refiled, and we have things in freezers. So, okay. So there's a couple big shelves piled high with dozens and dozens of boxes organized by family or species. Well, we're going to redo this whole cataloging system, but beans are together, peas are together, you know, tomatoes are together. We've got to reorganize how we how we're going to file all this. So that's. Ultimately, we're going to have a seed archive. We're going to have a room that's a walk-in freezer, and the whole collection will be frozen. Everything is in, in jars, and I'm going to change that. We're going to get uh, UV-protected plastic square containers. That's in our budget, uh, mainly because if we drop one of these jars, we have to pick up seeds and shattered glass. Mm -hmm. No fun. Do you still keep corn in the freezer? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Can we check that out? All right. So this is the corn collection. Not all of it, and but most of things. it. How do they get a spot in here? Uh, if we want to put it on hold for a couple of years, in here it goes. If it's corn, it's going to go here in anyway because we don't want moths in it. Can I close this now? Sure. I don't think it's good to keep it open. Right, right. And we're going to make a list of what we've got in here because I end up getting freezer burn on my arms just digging through all that stuff. Oh my stuff. gosh. <laughs> and you see we've got lettuces over here. One of our board members loves to do lettuce. And I'm thinking, I love you, lady. Just sit there and get that stuff in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I also develop, I create new varieties. I, I hope you know that. I mean, like solar flare. I, may, I created that lettuce. And Baker Creek is now selling it. What's the line between seed saver and plant breeder? I call him Earth Daddy. <laughs> Please say more. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who knows the sex life of plants. Okay, so it's all under one umbrella of all Earth Daddy. One um umbrella. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. So the, I noticed that room is dark. Yeah, the, the, the lighting is bad. We had a pipes break, and so we've had to disconnect some of the wiring. 
But it seems also maybe good for the seeds. It's better for the seeds, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, would you mind showing us a couple of the plants in the garden? No, that's fine. Thank you. You see, we make the tea with the comfrey. Mm -hmm. I can smell the comfrey tea. That's, it's nasty, but the plants love it. The Boy Scouts are coming in October, and they're going to redo all those beds and finish the greenhouse, build us tables. It's one of those, uh, uh, what do you call it, Eagle Scout projects. Mm. When did you start growing here? 1981, 82, and we built cedar raised beds and now we've got a quote on to replace all the wood uh, from a, a firm in Maine and they're giving us a good price so I said after frost we don't want to tear it up now but after frost we'll redo all the beds. There's a picture of you with Julia Child is it in this garden? Yes we did Good Morning America we did it here and we did it out in Lancaster so we're uh, that program was a collage of different things, and that's the Roughwood um, Chris. Ruth, you see that that dahlia there was named for, for Chris. I created that. Beautiful, I like that. It's an old-fashioned type. Yeah, it is, but it's beautiful. I like the simplicity. And one of the nice things I like about that dahlia, notice, long stems. Good for cutting. And there's a pippin pepper down there with the black leaves. Oh, let's, let's look at it. Oh yeah, very dark. The black leaves. But look, one of the plants has a tinge of some crossing in it. So I'm going to isolate that plant and see if I can't get a big, tall, variegated one. Oh, yeah, but so these go from black to brown to red. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a red one there. Yeah, the variegated one is purple, green, and white yep. on the leaves. That's an interesting combination. So, yeah. so what's this one called? Uh, this is the blackbird beak. Mm -hmm. So we had another pippin pepper. It's another pippin pepper. And uh, this is Delaware Indian Lenape green popcorn, and that is. Uh, Shawnee white wolf sweet corn and they're growing true so we're fine they're over there see those pink tomatoes mm -hmm. that's Debbie's pink uh -huh. I created that variety and over there we have the chapalote the 6,000 year old Mexican corn you see we're getting these cold frames ready oh I got pepper in my eye I didn't get as good fertilization as I wanted because we need to do two or two or three hundred but what we do is then we we get maybe uh, the best 300 seeds here I send it to a grower in Ohio mm -hmm. who grows for us he is in a GMO free area so we don't get any GMO corn to cross with this oh, excellent this is the the stubby okra which is depicted in a painting by one of the peels at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 1824. So we know that this was being grown here in the Philadelphia area as early as 1824. And there's a soybean here, no? Yeah, the soybean is from Bhutan. And I decided I would tr we would try this. It's, um, it's really robust. 
uh, incredibly robust and it's got white flowers so we'll see what happens it's not it's not happy that it's so crowded but I'm not gonna worry about it mm -hmm. hey we got look oh, it's yeah, little hugely abun uh, abundant so mm -hmm. I'm looking at global warming and this is gonna be a good food plant and the soybeans are white with speckles so they're different than your mm. common soybeans and, and then there's a medlar tree. And a medlar tree. That's Nottingham medlar. It's a medieval plant, and you have to blet the fruit. In other words, you let, leave the fruit on the tree until after frost. And then the frost changes these rock-hard fruits into something akin to a fig. John Bartram was sent one of these medlar trees, and he wrote to England, to Collinson, this Quaker, uh, when is, the, when is the, root, the, the fruit ripe? And Collinson wrote back, and I'm quoting a letter. He said, when it's as rotten as a turd. <laughs> <laughs> so you let yours sit around a while. Yes, I do. <laughs> What's this uh, cabbage relative with the big stems? Um, Cavallo... Navone from uh, Trento in Italy. It's a uh, totally rare type of, oh, what do you call it, rutabaga from the mountains of northern Italy. And it will, it's biennial, and by next year it'll have these huge, big tuber-like things. See how they're growing above ground. Mm -hmm. And then, um, sorry, we had some beetle problems here but we've gotten that under control um, and we're growing it for seed and they're incredibly delicious uh, in one of my books I have a recipe with for this with um, you cook this with polenta and you mix the two together and it's it's like another flavor it, it just it doesn't taste like corn it doesn't taste like rutabaga how will you, will you do something with them over the winter or will they be yeah, okay here? Yeah, we have here? to dig them up and, and overwinter them. Where, how, can you walk us through that? Um, we're going to dig them up and put them in a uh, cold storage. The, the Boy Scouts are going to um, stabilize that greenhouse over there and we're going to use that. Where it won't freeze in there, but it'll be chilly, you know. Mm -hmm. Will they be uh, clustered in soil or will Yes, in soil. Okay. I'll put them in a tub with sand or something. Sometimes I think of this tree up here that is the interspecific hybrid. I, that was the first time I learned that kind of thing. Not interspecific, intergeneric hybrid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing. Oh, you mean the uh, that rare pear? Mm -hmm. Yes. It didn't get fruit this year, but it got fruit last year. I think it's on a two-year cycle. We'll see what happens. Do you remember the name of it? No. <laughs> it's a Shipova mountain ash hybrid. It's been here almost 30 years, probably. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it didn't even start to bloom until it was 21 years old. <laughs> it's a cross between a mountain ash and a pear. And they don't know how it happened, but it's from the 1500s. And that happened in Alsace. Yeah, we think of the species line as one that's not often crossed, but this is crossing the genus line. Yes, and no one knows how it happened. 
and it's really it's super rare because it's mostly grown in botanical gardens as curiosity because it's not something you would grow for um, food because you, you know if you plant that for food it's going to be food for your great grandchildren <laughs> as opposed to you but I, I harvested them last year and they taste like pears with rose water it's incredible and they have no seeds because they're sterile so there's it, they're seedless fruit what would you say you're eating the most of right now in this garden cow peas <laughs> did you have a favorite this year no one of our growers didn't send us the right cow pea and it, this thing is taking over the garden and I said well let's not pull it up I'll just cook it <laughs> so are you eating it as a young I'm green bean like a string bean yeah okay totally okay all right well thank you you're welcome thank you uh dr weaver for all your time today and everything that you've done for the world and and in particular you know the way it's shaped the direction of my life i'm really grateful well you're quite welcome it's um it's fun to see that this whole energy is continuing and expanding and getting better Thank you so much to Dr. William Moyes Weaver for sharing his stories with us. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please share this episode with someone you love and subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by leaving us a review and also ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website trueloveseeds.com. And again, if you'd like to support our podcast, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future.